From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm your host, Ryan Gore, writer at Central Source and at Football Paradise and part-time queer at Sadarak. Had to shout out doing real quick. <laughs> Joining me on today's episode, we have writer at Brown Girl Magazine and exclusively podcaster at Central Source, <laughs> Joshua Wadira. Hello, hello. What's going on? Not much, honestly. Just Christmassy vibes. <laughs> Also joining me is Managing Editor at Central Source, Brandon Hill. Hello, hello. How's it going, guys? I'm doing all right. So, do you guys want to get any plugs out the way before we jump in? Uh, yeah, I've just got one. Um, it's been a few weeks now, but I don't think I've done an episode or I forgot to plug it since then. But um, I recently did an interview with a Franco-Cameroonian uh, rapper and R&B singer named Dursta. Um, about her new EP, Althea's Calling. Uh, it was a really interesting interview. We talked a lot about like the philosophy of making art um, and how art is intended to sort of like uncover and define these like ever-present truths that we just don't really have definitions for until they're uh, sort of locked into art. So it's a very, um, very interesting philosophical conversation. It's up now on Central Sauce. Check it out. And listen to the EP, it's really good. Very philosophical is the very correct term to describe that interview. <laughs> uh, Joshma, anything for you? Yeah, you know, outside of Brown Girl and exclusively podcasting at Central Sauce, I do own a company called Ode that manages different musicians and helps the creator economy. But an artist we're working with has a show on December 17th in New Jersey, and his name is Abe, and he's incredible. And so if you're in, the greater tri-state area, you should join us. But you can hit me up for those details. Other than that, same old, same old. Same old, same old, same old over here too. So today's episode, we have uh, some very serious topics and some very non-serious topics. So we are covering <laughs> the full spectrum today. We have a piece, a video, I guess we brought the video, about ringtones and how they dominated the music industry in the 2000s. Uh, uh, article from Complex about the drill rap episode of Law and Order, and a look at punk, metal, and mental health, which we'll start with, and that's Brandon's piece. So go ahead, Brandon. All right, yeah, I'll take it away. Yeah, as Ryan said, uh, my piece is a look at punk, metal, extreme music, and mental health by David Kanau, um in Please Kill Me which is a great name for like a website if you're going to write about like punk and metal music, first of all. Uh, so the yeah, reason this, this article really stood out to me was because we, and even on this podcast, we've talked a lot about like the way that mental health is represented in music, um, but we don't talk as often about how mental, like about how artists deal with mental health outside of music. Like, you know, you get all the time, like, artists, you know, express what they're feeling in, in their music and in their art, um, but you don't see the conversation quite as much about, like, no, like, I'm really going to psychiatry. Like, I had this this traumatic event that sparked this, and this is how I'm literally treating my mental illness in real life. Um, so this article uses a series of interviews 
with mostly like metal and punk stars who talk about their mental health and their their traumatic um, experiences to frame a wider conversation about the way that people in the music industry are dealing with mental health outside of music. Um, punk music is, of course, a very fitting genre for this discussion, and it's very like it's very good to put, or it's very it makes a lot of sense to go to that genre to put them um, sort of in the the spotlight of this conversation as the as Cano or Canal says in the article, uh, punk music has a you can do this to attitude. So when, you know, the stars of that genre who make that connection to their fans um, who relate through the music and then you see those stars going out to seek psychiatry or seek therapy, it carries a really strong um, inspirational message because you make that first connection with the music and then you see them sort of breaking down that stigma as they actually go and get help and they get treatment. And a lot of times, like when it comes to the stigma around mental health, which is one of the uh, most difficult parts about dealing with mental health, um, they mentioned in the article even how musicians, like the people who are at the front of sort of inspiring people to um, to take on their mental health, like are still susceptible to that stigma, right? Like you have a rock star um, who needs to get mental health and you're trying or mental help and you're trying to convince them, right? Like they still have the stigma, um, and he even uses the line that only crazy people take pills, right? Like that stigma that exists, it still, you know, it still affects even the people that we think of as sort of like at the forefront, like as beyond, um, you know, just the regular fan. Um, so what did you know? What did you guys think of the article? Um, how did it really kind of like? give you a new perspective on the way that mental health is discussed inside and outside of music. Yeah. I mean, I loved this piece and I think it's a lot of different components that make it really good. A read that isn't intimidating, even though it's about such a intense and important topic, but it's also pretty relatable because I remember growing up and listening to like a ton of Papa Roach and a lot of punk and metal when I was going through really turbulent times and probably needed to go see a mental health professional, right? Or seek out resources like therapy or counseling. And that just wasn't a concept in the world that I lived in at the time. But talking about feelings was a concept in the music that I was consuming. So I think for a lot of listeners, these genres specifically are a place where people are regularly talking about their feelings, but that doesn't mean they're dealing with their feelings, right? Because there's such a big stigma around that. And I think in hip hop, it's kind of like a recanting of experiences and systematic issues, systemic issues in different communities. And that comes from spoken word. But again, we're not really talking about how we're dealing with the feelings, but I thought some of the statistics they cited from the 2017 billboard survey were really, really interesting because that's a handful of years ago now, but I, I, I'd be hard pressed to believe that it's gotten any better. Um, but I, I wanted to read a few of them. So according to a report about the survey in Billboard, 71% of musicians polled said they suffered from anxiety and 69% said that they suffered from, that they battled depression. Furthermore, 57% of the people polled said they had, they went untreated and 53% said they had a hard time finding the right appointment. So I think that despite maybe having access to resources like capital or or time in the same way, there's still such a high barrier to entry around seeking mental health um, resources. And, and I wonder if that's like attributed to 
lack of great healthcare and insurance systems in, in the countries we're talking about, or if it's more about the large stigma. But I thought it was super full circle because this morning I was listening to Dan Renzi's new episode of the Chapital podcast, and it was with the founder of the R&B label Love Renaissance, Tunde, and they were talking about how at Love Renaissance, one of their largest emphasis is on actual mental health resources for employees and for artists. And so I think that this conversation is happening in and outside of music, but we're finally, hopefully, getting to a place where we're not just destigmatizing the concept of having feelings about your feelings <laughs> and that being a real concern and different illnesses and conditions being a real concern, but now we're getting to the point where we're equitably challenging institutions to offer resources in the same way that they would for a physical injury. Yeah, I thought this piece is really beautiful and really well-rounded, like Jashma alluded to. Um you have a lot of statistics in the piece, you have a lot of interviews in the piece, and then you have uh, David's own voice in between that. So it's just structurally, I thought it was really well-rounded. And in terms of his arguments, um, I thought, like, the, the the piece doesn't kind of limit to... It doesn't try to discuss trauma or anything like that and try to limit what mental health can look like. Because a lot of the times, um, when mental illness can look like, because a lot of times stuff like anxiety and depression can come from things that aren't as big. And you can feel as someone who suffers from those things, like, well, I haven't gone through anything crazy traumatic, so I can't really, surely I'm not in the same group as people who have anxiety, and I, I don't need that kind of help, surely. But I like how the piece brings up the pandemic and the general anxiety going around about that and specifically for artists who can't tour and will experience money problems during the pandemic because monetary issues also will cause a lot of mental health issues for people. It's not just big traumatic events uh, in your childhood. It's just things like, man, I might not have enough money to get through the month or there's this big this virus going around the world right now. Even though everyone is experiencing that anxiety, it doesn't invalidate the anxiety. And I thought that piece, the piece is really well-rounded in that sense. And... Um, talks about infrastructure uh, for mental health and for just general support for people, for artists, as well as um, therapy and like support for people suffering from mental illness. And um, I really liked what one of the closing quotes was from one of the interviewees, uh, Joseph Panola. He said, music is the ultimate corkscrew for everything we bottle up and musicians have that corkscrew at their disposal. And I think that's just a really lovely sentiment about how freeing art is, uh, not only in like creating it, but in the consumption of it, because music is really just the expression of feeling and expression of emotion. And uh, we talk about how artists can act as idols and can start a conversation around mental health or, you know, set the example by going to therapy. Um just even if they don't do that publicly, just by expressing feelings on wax, it means it can mean a lot from for a fan who may not feel like they're able to express themselves in their own words or may not know that they could express themselves at all. So yeah, I just thought that was a really beautiful sentiment, just linking the the idea of art as that kind of um 
emancipator when it comes to our, our mental health issues. I thought it was really interesting that they, I think, I, I hope I'm not pronouncing this incorrectly, but Charlie Benant, they, they asked him a question and he said, with metal music in general, there's a bond we all have as fans. If I'm walking down the street and I see someone wearing an Iron Maiden shirt, I already know that I have something in common with them and we can open up and talk. And I think the same sentiment applies to when we do things without saying them or while saying them, like Ryan just said, right? Sometimes it's not really about hearing what Mac Miller talked about in therapy. It's just, oh, Mac Miller went to therapy. And maybe as a consumer in my head, I think I haven't had enough reasons to go to therapy. Or I think that it's selfish when someone takes care of themselves because we live in capitalistic constructs that teach us that when someone takes care of themselves, there's something wrong with them. But I think that the more healthy we become, the more financially healthy we all become as a society, we kill scarcity in different communities that don't have access to those things and don't have access to the language. And so I think it's really important to just go, even if you don't tell anyone, but normalize having that feeling and normalize dealing with it, right? We don't go to the doctor just because we're sick. In fact, in America, people go to the doctor for like annual general checkups and things like that, but don't go when they're unwell, which is so crazy, right? So I hope we live, I hope we all continue to live in a world where it's very normal to be like, I'm really anxious today, Ryan. And there doesn't have to be a because. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it, I think it's also like it's super easy to to view artists who touch on the subject a lot in their music as almost like some form of like mental health superhero, right? Like almost that because they are expressive about it, that they are in some way stronger or in some way they are dealing with it more successfully than what you are. So then, you know, when you hear um, like about an artist, like, and they actually say, you know, it's not just the music. Like, I actually go to therapy like you know i i've been on medication like this is the way that i'm dealing with it it brings it down again to a level where you're connecting with it but you're connecting with it from less from less of a distance where it feels less of like something to strive for right it feels less like an end point um and it feels more like a tool that you can use along the journey like along the healing uh, because the artist is using it in the same way and again, like, you know, music, like, like you said that quote, Ryan, I was going to read as well. Um, musicians have that corkscrew at their disposal, right? They can pop that off. It's really interesting, like how this artist or how this article goes into um, dealing with the COVID pandemic and its particular impact in the artist industry, not just because of uh, the logistics of executing shows and touring and selling albums and recording, um, but also because of the way that the community being an expressive community finds new ways to talk, to discuss, to open up, um, and to connect with each other and other people. Um, and I got, I got one good solid quote I want to end on here, unless anybody has, a, has another point. Go for it. Yeah, so um, I want to bring this back to what Joshma said as well about um, needing to, for the industry um, to make a shift to providing these services and, and, and sort of like as a society viewing mental health in a similar way to how we view physical health, right? As in, you know, you break a leg, you go to the doctor, you get your leg fixed. Um, but somehow there's a disconnect, you know, when you're suffering from a mental illness, you know, again, it's that stigma um, about getting it treated. So um, the, the writer here, I love this quote that summarizes the article. Um, he says, what the record companies and agencies should be doing is hiring mental health people to work with the groups as they form or work with the artists when they sign them up, not wait for what could happen later, he says. 
Usually we wait until there's a catastrophe with the environment, the government, our infrastructure, and we wait until there's a catastrophe with our emotional well-being. That's a sign of humanity's dependence on chaos. We need to accompany the beginnings of success. I think it can be done, but the people who have the money have to be able to invest in that. Um, there's a popular sort of saying, you know, that's like when it comes to what, what is the best way to treat a heart attack, right? It's prevention. It's not, it's not trying to fix the heart attack as it happens or after it happens. You know, the best way to treat a heart attack is to have a diet to keep track of your cholesterol um, and to prevent it from ever happening in the first place. And so often, so often when we look at these systems, um, we don't apply that same logic. And I think that um, the way we view mental health is especially, you know, in music with these artists as these labels um, who are investing in them as a product, you know, are not um, taking the necessary precautions or using, you know, um, the same approach that looks so logical when you look at it at towards physical health. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that quote. It's a really great uh, quote to end on. Um, so yeah, that was a look at punk, metal, extreme music and mental health by David Cano. Uh, do please check out the article in the show description. Uh, it has, it points you in some great directions when it comes to um, organizations and communities when mm. it comes to help, dealing with mental health. So, uh, whether it's for yourself or for someone else you may know, uh, yeah, worth a look if um, that's of interest. And that was in uh, Please Go Me All right, guys, let's talk about ringtones. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, my, my video agenda continues. Cue Charlie rolling his eyes somewhere. Um, but yeah, uh, this is another one from Mike DeSnare. If you listen a few weeks back, he did uh, the video on Spiritual Way that I brought. And this one's about how uh, ringtones dominated the music industry. Um, this is one of the most enjoyable and insightful videos I've seen for quite a long time. Um, because Mike DeSnare gives his intricate analysis while acknowledging and leaning into the comedy that comes from the absurdity of the ringtone era. Uh, Just the way he opens this video is just absolutely hilarious and just epitomizes how just truly absurd the whole thing is. Um, He covers really the full scope of the issue from how personalized ringtones developed, how they're popularized, how they're commercialized, how everyone went a little bit insane and really annoying for a little bit, and how it just suddenly died down as technology developed um, to where we are today. And it's like a solid 20-minute video, but one that could easily have been way longer with the amount of detail that uh, Mike DeSnare goes into, and the way he tracks our ringtones were a mark for technological, musical, and economic advancement. Like, it's a really, really... Um, it's a great documentation... Yeah, documentation that doesn't feel dense at any point because he makes it easy to digest through the comedy uh in the scripts and in the editing and just in the in the situation generally so yeah i thought this was fascinating i thought i just learned so much so many things that i caught a glimpse of as a kid but wasn't quite sure if that was a real thing that actually happened or something like a fever dream I jumped up when I was five. Um, but yeah, uh, just really, really great video. So yeah, 
What did you guys think of it? I like I like the your comparison to like a fever dream. It's really interesting to see um, great like retrospective journalism done like this, specifically on like this sort of time period uh, when we were like children, right? Who didn't have you know you don't have the more broad like understanding. You experience things very much like as they happen and within the context of of just what's right there as a child. Um, so this, this kind of journalism, like in that retrospect, especially for like our age is just really interesting, like to get the breakdown and be like, Oh, like that, like, I didn't understand the context behind that, but that's why, um, you know, we all wanted our personalized ringtones. Like that's why, Oh, especially like one of the things that, um, points out the most is how soldier boy, um, with you and how he specifically was like making rap music for ringtones like, that's not something that, like, I would have made that connection to at the time, but makes, like, a lot of sense in retrospect and on, like, why, you know, certain ringtones were popular um, because of the different styles that the ringtones are made in. It reminded me of when I was a kid, I used to listen to a lot of 106 and Park on the radio with my parents. And that was where I first started understanding how to take a flip phone, record the song uh, that was playing on the radio and then turn it into your ringtone. But I vividly remember this era of what feels like it might have not happened because I was so young. But this this video segment reminded me that it did happen. But it's like Jalissa Bermudez. And she's like, to get this ringtone, be sure to enter our da-da-da-da-da. Like, it's like a giveaway competition. And that world seems so far away, but so familiar. And it it actually got me thinking about a weird concept of how we relate to being contacted. And this is such a deep cup, but our phones ringing used to be something that related to a moment of joy for us because we would pick a ringtone that we wanted to hear (laughs) when someone was hitting us up. And then eventually they became personalized, right? Like when Ryan calls, it's going to be a different song than when Brandon calls me, um, And I think that that experience of curating for your enjoyment and entertainment is so different than how we curate now. We curate for others' enjoyment and entertainment, right? We curate to be consumed, not to consume. Um, And so I thought that that I really enjoyed feeling. It was like a little trip down memory lane. But I also love every time you pick one of these because I learn so much and not in a boring way. Um, but I'm the first to say what I didn't know. So outside of the last time, I think you brought something like this. I had never really watched any of his videos. And in my head, they remind me of longer form Hassan Minaj bits because they're very like chop cutty. And so in the back of my head, I was like, what do his hand motions look like? I'm very invested in this. But also, now I have a question for both of you. If you had to set a ringtone today, what song would it be? It would still be Crazy Frog. <laughs> <laughs> it would still be Crazy Frog. Um, I, I'm thinking of... Um, what is it? It's going to be Time Travel by, Ma- by Mavi. That journalism mm. gonzo <laughs> made it at the Apollo. That's the ringtone. Predictable. <laughs> so predictable, Randon. <laughs> What's your Jasmine? I feel like it's probably not appropriate, but like my first ringtone was Turn Me On by Kevin Little, and I feel like I'm still there. I, as a. Bringing it back to the throwback. Yeah. I, as a young child, was like, it's my phone is on. This makes sense. <laughs> Here we are. A very innocent way to look at it. Oh! Um. <laughs> um 
But yeah, what I found really most fascinating about this video was kind of like the intersection of technology and seeing how technology develops and how the music industry co-opted it. Um, yeah. The idea that yeah. people were just going crazy for the fact that the phone could play more than one note <laughs> at a time was just incredible. Like, it, it, I just love that that's a real thing that happened well, that's... in life. That was one of the most interesting parts about the whole video to me was how because like, of course, like I said, like when you're a kid, you don't understand the whole dynamic of like there's a label and what the technology is on this song. But they actually like these companies that were making money on ringtones um, were basically taking songs and then, oh, I wrote a quote down. There's a great one. So they had to strip like a song, a recognizable song down into one single line of music and make it recognizable, like immediately recognizable, because that's the whole charm of a ringtone. Um, the quote here is, one thing that would take a lot of my time during the day was to think, how do I boil down a song with a lot of voices down to just one simple melody line? You'd have to think of just that melody line and do it in such a way where it would still communicate, you know, what the song was to folks when the ringtone went off. Um, and, and even that, like, these simplified versions of the song, like, taking a multi-layered, multi-produced, multi-credited track, stripping it down to one line of music with, with that can only play one tone at a time, and then that 30-second file would sell for two to four times as much as the fully produced song, right? You could buy a song on iTunes for 99 cents, but to get the ringtone version of it, you would spend two to four dollars on it. So now all of a sudden, like all those commercials that you see, you know, the which he uh, which Mike uses a lot of in the video and was a total like that was a fever dream for me too. like <laughs> seeing all those like, you know, text nine, nine, nine to whatever and get quagmire giggity giggity <laughs> like as your ringtone. Like it like it makes sense how that whole thing like shaped an industry and not just as like an interesting funny little novel thing um and also how how companies will jump on like trends that they don't fully understand just because they want to cut in on a slice of the money right like they don't need it they're like we don't need to dominate the market we just need to get a little slice of it um like with the crazy frog thing like that was very clearly like a niche like one-off like novelty thing that like blew up and people loved it and then like these other companies you know tried to jump on with their own like obnoxious characters and like horrible horrible animations like horrible animations and they're like oh this is the charm it's shitty like that like that the 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 trend jumping like is is just hilarious to me so absolutely incredible so we're all saying that we're gonna never shit on tiktok again because this is exactly what people have accomplished on tiktok and this is exactly what's happening both with the trends the boiling down a song to one line and making sure it's recognizable i don't want to hear it y'all i don't want to hear the tiktok hate anymore okay gen z know what's up (laughs) Uh, us being Gen Z, yeah, we do. We do know what's uh, up. <laughs> um, just quickly, I want to shout out like, a couple more things from the video. Um, just how uh, this, like, the serendipity of this era coinciding with the rise of the MP3 file and that allowing um, things like Napster and LimeWire to come up, which left the industry scrambling to monetize in some unique way, which led them to pump a bunch of money into ringtones. Like, just that sequence of events, if one of those links was missing, we wouldn't have these just incredible, insane ringtone characters we would today. So I'm very thankful for that. Um, 
And also just to touch on what Brandon was saying, um, and what Mark Disney kind of wraps up by saying at the end is how ringtones kind of like paved the way for meme culture, and just like how uh, just how insane a connection that is. I I absolutely love it. Um, but yeah, so just to end, I want to know what everyone's favorite weird animation uh animated character that ringtone companies <laughs> invented so they wouldn't have to license actual songs <laughs> i like the little think? the little what was it like a mammoth that was singing like a deep love song and yes. a, that was so cute and the narrator's like he's hilarious like <laughs> he's he's so funny well and, that, and also like when mike and then mike interjects they're like that shows a good bit of like for especially for video like well-paced comedy yeah. Um, partnered with visuals that keeps things like diverse and entertaining as well as informative. Yeah, his style is really, really, really incredible. I loved the mammoth and it made me think of one that wasn't in his video, which this is, again, a very deep cut. But back back in the day, you needed calling cards to call internationally and you would buy them at grocery stores and they would essentially connect you to a provider that would mask your number and then you would be able to make an international phone call and they had one for calling india when i was a kid and it would sing this really creepy song and then sell you a ringtone at the end and it was like this weird girl with a grilled cheese in her hand and she really freaked me out (laughs) (laughs) i love that i i I had a really soft spot for the (laughs) the sequence of words can sound hilarious the emo vampire boy (laughs) Oh, the one he who does the like the backwards moonwalk like up the slide. If if you're listening to this, please go watch just the portion, if not the whole episode. But <laughs> oh if nothing else, watch the emo vampire boy and tell us it's not Ryan's doppelganger. <laughs> I am not that pale. <laughs> but yeah, that guy that that guy is like. Mickey, if you listen to this, tell me that isn't exactly what Drake does. Anyway, after that bombshell, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> oh, and uh, for listeners who want to hear more about the impact of the MP3 on the music industry, um, we also have covered that in a previous episode of In Search of Sauce on episode 22 in more detail. So, Got the episode number and everything. Check it out. I was looking it up. I feel like I, this is me live pitching. I think we need to do an episode on Napster, LimeWire, and Meme Culture Hot Takes, exclusively. Absolutely. This is a great segue. (laughs) It is. Anyway, that was how Ringtones Dominate the Music Industry by Mike Snare. Uh, that's enough fun for today, I think. Let's <laughs> let's move on to Jashna's piece. Yeah, so I chose a piece from Andre G. No surprise there, one of our favorite journalists on the podcast for Complex Magazine. But I chose this because I think that as the temperature drops and people start to consume more TV and series-based media again, I was thinking a lot about what are the shows that I've loved for a very long time, but what are the subconscious messages that they've sent me or very literal messages that they've sent me over the years. And so this piece was titled the drill rap episode of law and order SVU is full of stereotypes and propaganda. And so the episode talks about how 
two drill rappers are involved in some crimes and one of them goes from not just drug related and theft crimes, but ends up sex trafficking the 17-year-old white woman. Um, And so Andre really, this is a very dense piece, and I think rightfully so. It explores a lot of different nuances of what happens when you take something like Ice-T, whose entire career was effectively commentary on a certain type of culture, on why a community becomes the way it becomes, about outside influences and systemic issues that relate to crime and how that informs music and hip-hop and so it was really 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 interesting and before i keep going to my favorite parts i want to hear what you both thought yeah um again i mean it's andre so i'm glad you brought this one too because i had not read this one um and i'm usually keeping up with most of the stuff but as i was taking notes on this like I found myself almost just copy pasting quotes like this. This is an article you really, really should read. Um, I love the way where just like you started out with your explanation, Joshma, um, he starts out with just a very um, expositional explanation of what happens on the show. Right. Very factual, like what it is, what's going on. Um, But then he like slowly broadens it because this article is about a lot more um, than just a really shitty law and order episode. Um, It ends up being about the entire dynamic of using, like, hip-hop culture and rap and those communities um, as a, like, piece of entertainment, right? Because whenever you make entertainment, you're making entertainment for a target audience, right? Um, And the the intersection of the law and order audience um, that understands the complexity of hip-hop is not very wide. So that's clearly not the audience that they're making this for. Um, yeah. And I mean, even and even the fact that it has Ice-T in it, you know, granted with everything with like Ice-T's cop killer um, and his whole career. And even I'm going to read like one of Ice-T's quotes because this literally made me do a double take um, when I read it. And it, it's I think it's one of the only ones from the show that Andre actually pulls into the piece. Um, so he's quoting Ice-T here. When um, they're talking about the two drill rappers where the one the one drill rapper um, shoots the other one. So Ice-T says, I've seen this in street crime. They've been shooting each other up all over the city. Ice-T replies, the dummies want to be famous so bad they're doing our job for us. Implying like that. What it, like what is their job? Like what like what is the implication there? Like that's that's so unbelievably like. That, that a line like that can not just slip through the cracks, but literally, like, that Ice-T, voc- like, vocalizes it on the show. Um, and that's, where again, where Andre, like, brings it into a broader conversation about how shows like this um, romanticize police action, right? Like, often, like, shows like Law and & Order um, and other similar shows will literally show police doing something in the show for entertainment that in reality is either wildly inaccurate or flat out illegal, like blatant, like entrapment, like for entertainment on a TV show. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, just hats off to Andre. There's a bunch, there's so many quotes that I want to read from this piece, but I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll toss the, the speaking ball. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the speaking ball, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think Andre does really well 
to document like every microaggression and every macroaggression in the episode. Because like just from reading Andre's paragraph of what simply happens in the episode, there's just an overwhelming amount of both of those. And, you know, if I was tasked with writing a similar piece, I don't know if I would be able to distill all of that into something thought-provoking that isn't just like an angry mess. It's something that actually has some kind of point rather than just, you know, being like some kind of hit piece, you know? Uh, Andre has like the skill to to have some kind of subtlety with it, uh, as well as showing his anger in a more thought-provoking way than just something that's a bit rash. Um, I also thought like the quote that he took from the showrunner about how they aim to be apolitical when they're literally a show about the American justice system was <laughs> really well placed to kind of highlight the um, the blatant hypocrisy and the propaganda. Right, and that was a response to a question about how the show would continue uh, with the popularity of the defund the police movement, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think that just shows how like intentionally spiteful the writing of the show is and how intentionally spiteful airing an episode like that is and starring someone like Ice-T to be in it. Um, and like Jashima said, it just kind of makes you wary of the shows that you grew up with that you didn't think too deeply about before. But as you grow older and look back, you think, ah, that was actually just like blatant propaganda. And it kind of makes me appreciate shows that kind of are free from it. Like, I always just champion uh, Donald Glover's Atlanta because, like, in theory, that thing should not be on TV. It's just way too surreal and singular for it to exist. So just my message is just appreciate the shows that are just, like, free of all, all this crap. Yeah, you know, I think you both summed up a lot of the things that I felt when I picked the piece and when I read it. And most importantly, that... I think one of Andre's most incredible qualities as a journalist is his ability to give extremely nuanced yet focused takes and always be dissecting them while informing the reader. And that's something that I think I would love to learn how to do one day. But to the end of the quote that Brandon said about dummies, he he goes on to say... Law and Order is a popular show celebrated in part by a demographic uninterested in the nuances of black art. There are too many people who only get their perception of rap music from exaggerated dramatizations like this, which makes them unwilling to consider the changes needed to create a better world for poor people. And I think that for me was probably the most moving part of the entire piece because I looked it up and I think per tvseriesfinale.com in November 2021, which was like a week ago... (laughs) Um, Law and Order SVU ranked 4.31 million viewers. I can't speak today. Um, But that's a lot of people. And then I'm sure if you delve into the statistics of who's watching a show that long, um, what cities, states, countries it's most streamed in, what that demographic looks like, you start to wonder if we're entering this this phase of like hip hop police energy that you know is something we've talked about for a long time the first piece i wanted to write at central sauce but didn't yet was about chameleon air song hip hop police and it's about these very same sentiments right that 
these days it's become the equivalent of committing a murder if you're a hip hop artist or a rapper because that's how you're consistently portrayed and nobody ever contextualizes the systemic mm-hmm. structures that cause for those things to happen in different communities. Um, so yeah, ode, ode, ode to Andre. Yeah, I like, um, again, with him, like uh, with the way that he broadens um, the context of the piece. Like, as you said, he, he directly then relates it to the way rap music is used in court. Um, and there's a particular line in there where he says, propagandist framing of rap music as literal, which is what's done in this Law & Order episode, is also what causes people to look the other way when artists are targeted by police task force and have their lyrics used against them in cases, Right. So if you flip this on its head, because there's been lots of studies done on this um, with comparing like uh, violent country music lyrics with violent hip hop lyrics and how people's perception changes based on who they think is saying the lyrics. If you flip this whole thing on its head um, and had like, you know, a a propagandist, like a very um, literal take on country music that constantly frames them as, you know, the undesirable um, the bad, the violent, um, and police as the the good, the containing it, the removing it, you know, the saviors. Um, and then you suddenly start bringing country music into courts in the way that hip hop is used. You know, it would it would look very very different to a lot of people. Yeah, that just reminds me of how much there is in this piece. Like, I don't know how he managed to tackle so many issues in like a, a piece that isn't crazy long, like. Just in pure admiration of Andre's writing style right now. Um, like I said, so many microaggressions in the show, so many macroaggressions in the show, and he manages to point them out, explain them, and break them down within like about a thousand words. It's crazy. This piece also gave so me crazy. a lot of hope that critical journalism that's informed is going to come back in a very meaningful way it already is in a lot of music communities and hip-hop but i think in an age where we're streaming and creating content in such a high volume it feels almost impossible for there to be enough great critiques on all the things that are being created but i think it's important that we start going back to that right like blind consumption is exceptionally dangerous and the only way to prevent uh, another generation growing up with the same tropes being fed to them is to make sure that we're not only making sure the type of content, film, TV, music, movies are being made by the people that they are about, but also that the public's take on them is is spotlighted. Yeah, I'll steal Brandon's line to uh, to end on: teach media literacy in schools. You said that before, right? <laughs> yes, like, that's good. like that's my <laughs> biggest like. I think that's the most important thing that needs like needs to be done is to start teaching media literacy and like as soon as you can hold a phone, kids need to learn like media literacy. A hundred percent right. I was just worried I got confused between you and another white person. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I wasn't that prepared. Was... <laughs> that was the drill rap episode of Law and Order is full of stereotypes and propaganda by Andre G for Complex. And I'll give a shout out to our other uh, journalists today. That's uh, Mike DeSnare for How Ringtones Dominated the Music Industry and um, David Cano for his article, A Look at Punk, Metal, Extreme Music and Mental Health in Please Kill Me Magazine and the Mike DeSnare videos on his channel on YouTube. Uh, And that does us for today's episode. Uh, Thank you for listening. 
if you got this far we really appreciate it if you want to drop us a rating and review wherever you can uh we'd really appreciate that too and be sure to check out centralsource.com for all of our uh writing and words and things brandon do you want to say your piece uh yeah writers or people who are reading uh lesser known writers we like to cover a diverse uh group of writers and publications on this show and we're always looking for uh new stuff to check out even if we don't feature it on the show uh so send us some of your writing uh recent preferably or send us some writing from someone that you've been reading who you think um needs a little bit more of a spotlight we would love to check it out and possibly feature it on the show thank you so much for listening to it for sure thank you guys and we'll see you on the next one thanks everyone this episode of a search of source featured ryan gore brandon hill and josh moradora of the central source Crave collective the episode is edited by me child title of the fifth Fint podcast network music for the show Fucked up by Barsty. Thanks to your breakers for being to use. It's been a Central Source Fifth Element podcast over production. Thanks for Barsty, your record Central Source to Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.